tonight's speaker is Barry, and I came into AA six years ago in Ju July, and I sat always next back there by the window and kept my head down. And uh, 15 minutes after the hour, every meeting, somebody named Jim would speak, <laughs> and, and everything he said made, made sense. So I was looked forward to hearing that. I couldn't understand the book very well. And then at like 35 after the hour, I knew Barry would be speaking soon, and I would get excited because uh, I had found somebody that made sense of the program to me, and he didn't know it, but he was he was my secret sponsor, and he, <laughs> and he still he's not, he still didn't know that until just now. <laughs> uh, I had a sponsor, the same one that's in Wimberley, but. Having somebody in the room who shared very articulately, something like that, uh, made sense, was very helpful. And so it was somebody that could break down everything I was hearing into, into language that I could understand. Um, two months later, suddenly Barry was gone from the meeting. I was like, this was in September. I was like, where did Barry go? And a week later, I asked somebody, did he... Did Barry go out? Why isn't he coming to the meeting? And they said, no, he's a teacher. He had to go back to school. And so uh, I ended up finding other people to listen to and also really enjoying it whenever I did cross paths with Barry in a meeting. And so tonight's speaker is Barry. Barry. Hi, my name is Barry. I'm an alcoholic. I've been clean and sober since January 10th of 1999. For that, I'm very grateful. I had 20 years yesterday. And, uh, you know, um, thank you, and it's always a great honor to be up here. And I'm glad that I was Steve's secret sponsor, since uh, most of the time I'm someone's public resentment. So it's good to know that that could be reversed once. And, uh, you know, it's nice to be here on a Friday night in front of a bunch of nice, pretty, clean sociopaths as we all sit here and talk about our little non-drinky club. And um, uh, my favorite joy is always at New Year's when we start calling the people who drink normally amateurs, <laughs> completely ignoring the fact that we're the motherfuckers who never learned the rules. That's always the, that's always the greatest moment. And um, I guess... Uh, <laughs> I guess to start at the beginning, um, I'm one of the rarest things you're ever going to meet in this world. I'm a native Austinite, been born here um, at the original Brackenridge Hospital, and um, you know, I was born, I took it personal, you know, and um, <laughs> you know, the thing is that whatever it is that was wrong inside of me, whatever it is the doctor's opinion calls restless, irritable, and discontent, whatever it is that we refer to as terminal uniqueness, whatever it is that was going on. Um, everyone here has allowed their own personal opinion. My knowledge is that I was born an alcoholic waiting for the first drink. Whatever it was inside of me, the thing that, that was just activated by anger and by fear and all this other stuff, anxiety, depression, whatever you want to call it, it was there from the get-go. I mean, my first memories about feeling like I was on the outside looking in were literally the very first day of kindergarten. 
You know, I can remember seeing there looking at this big, wild group of people thinking, man, they're going to fucking kill me if I go out there. You know, it's just, I already felt that I was on the outside looking in. And, um, you know, my, uh, the very first manifestation of my alcoholism was back then when I already displayed a terrible tendency to compare my insides to other people's outsides. I mean, literally in kindergarten, I was sitting there watching other kids play games, be successful at football, walk over, make friends and stuff. And I would sit there and look at them as they did this everyday stuff as if I was watching the moon landing. I was just like, how the fuck can they do that? I mean, they would just walk up to strangers and start talking. And I was like having a heart attack every time you asked me a question in public. I mean... There was nothing in the world more terrifying than the possibility of being rejected. You know, it sits there and it talks in the 12 and 12, it talks quite a bit in step six about how it is that we wish that we had these attributes. We waste our time. This dream, yeah, there's a, that's a seat over here if anyone is standing, you want to come over and grab it. Um, we sit there and we talk about how it is that it would be nice if we had these attributes, if we had these traits, whatever. And this tendency to live inside of a dream world, a fantasy world, was already there. You know, I mean, as a kid, I was um, born in 1973, so I turned five when the first Star Wars came out. Uh, My parents, my mom used to work as a bartender, and so she would, like, sit me behind the bar and give me some money for some comic books and stuff like that. And, man, that fantasy world, that just seemed a hell of a lot better than anything that I had going on in my life. It was really good to sit there and get lost in these daydreams and stuff like that. Um, I love my parents, and um, but it took me about 10 years of sobriety to be able to say and acknowledge that I was born into an abusive household. My parents were not cruel people. They were not mean people by any standards. What they were was overwhelmed. Um, neither of my parents went to college until my mom in her 40s went back and got herself a degree as a substance abuse counselor. Uh, my dad operated his own business, and, you know, it was a good business, but if anyone knows economic history, about the time that I turned five was when the oil prices crashed. And my dad's business, which revolved around working around these small towns in rural Texas, it went to shit. I mean, my parents, my parents both worked 60 hours every week, and we didn't have shit to show for it at the end of the week. I mean, there was nothing left over. My parents were not systematically abusive, but the fact is that there was a lot of fear going on in their life, and it's, the fear was like oxygen being pumped into a balloon. It got bigger, it got bigger, the tension got greater, it got greater, and eventually it was going to pop. And if you happen to be the person sitting right there when it popped, life was really going to suck for a few minutes, you know. And um, it was just that they, they both worked really hard, but given our economic circumstance, if you forgot to put food into the refrigerator, if food was left out to spoil, that was a big deal in my household. That's just what it was. And, uh, you know, I was sitting there just going off, and I was already this weird kid. You know, I'm sitting there. I've always had a tendency to talk to myself. I was a bedwetter for a long time. I had, um, it took me a long time to learn how to do common stuff like tie my shoes. Right now, I'm a special ed teacher. And if I was, uh, 
If I was going to school in today's environment, they probably would have diagnosed several different learning disabilities, ADHD and things like that. I mean, I was this kid that had this jittery, angry energy inside of myself that was never able to really be satisfied. You know, and um, one of the things that has caused me over the years that I've identified with is I have a friend of mine who's very physically fit. You would never guess this about them, but they go to Overeaters Anonymous. And one time I was sitting there asking, why is it that you choose to do that? And they told me, I can't feel satiation. And that was me right there. I've never understood why if one of something feels good, that four of them won't feel fucking great. That's just how my mind works. If something is good, then you go out there and you do it every day. You know, I want to be out there. I want to be, I want to feel that adrenaline inside myself. I want to have that sense of purpose. I want to be out there and involved in something. I don't want to be present. I don't want to be sitting here following rules or someone else's schedule or anything like that. I want to be off by myself or I want to be the center of the show. That's just how it is that my mind works. And, uh, you know, I can always remember that um, when I was in middle school, you know, I, there was this one time in which we all went home for Christmas break. We came back and the kids started all talking about um, what it is that they got for Christmas. And as we went around the room and every one of those kids was talking about what it was they got for Christmas, I realized that every one of these kids had a gift that was probably equal to my family's entire Christmas. And, you know, that sounds very petty and materialistic, but when you're in sixth grade and seventh grade, stuff like that sticks with you. It's in the back of your mind. Every time you start to feel that something's okay, you remember some little memory like that, which is like this bizarre proof that you're different, that you're diminished, that you're less than. And, um, you know, and on top of this, I'm not going to go too deeply into this, but I was also like flypaper for bullies at that time. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, I, I have always had this asthmatic cough, this runny nose. I was li literally, this is not an exaggeration, from kindergarten to eighth grade, I was the smallest kid in my class every year. That's not an exaggeration. And um, it, it was just really tough for quite a time there, yeah. Puberty was not fucking fun. Um, and, um, you know, it's uh, if you were sitting there and you were looking at me and you had the ability to read minds or something like that, one of the first things you would have thought when you met me was, wow, this kid needs a drink. <laughs> I didn't have a drinking problem when I was in seventh grade, but damn, I could have used one. You know, I mean, it would have, would have been something able to take that edge off. And that's what is that happened the very first time I ever drank. The first time I ever drank, I was off with some friends and... You know, I had this horrible pizza face zit complexion. My nose was running. I had these, they're actually better now, but the glasses I had back then were literally like the Coke bottle bottoms. I had like the social skills of a cabbage. And you know, we're sitting there, we go off with some guys, and, we, and one of their older brothers shows up with some old English 800. 
and we started popping the tops on that. And on my way out there, I'm just this weird, quiet, creepy kid sitting in the back of the bus. But man, after popping the top on that, 30 minutes later, I was doing naked wind sprints in the lobby of the Holiday Inn. And, um, you know, my, my story that I have to tell you, and, and if you are an alcoholic, because I'm an alcoholic, I hope you'll identify with this, is that I'm not in Alcoholics Anonymous because the last drunk was so bad. I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous because the first drunk was so good. My entire life I was born, and man, I sat there and I popped the top and I drank it, and all of that fear and self-hate and doubt just went away. It was just gone. That fear, that anxiety, that obsession that everyone is watching me and seeing everything wrong about me, gone. And, um, you know, I can remember very distinctly sitting down on the bed, putting my hands up on my head and thinking to myself, I wonder if this is what normal is. Because like that nagging critical voice in the back of my head, that tape recorder that like remembered every stupid and embarrassing thing I'd ever done went to mute. And I sat there and as it says in the uh, big book, I was able to act extemporaneously. I was able to be at ease with myself. I was able to sit there and tell jokes in front of people and we were all laughing and we were together and I felt like I really had friends. And, um, you know, it was something that later on when I desperately wanted to stop drinking, when I was waking up in the drunk tank in Williamson County, when every day was this agonizing hangover to look around and find the clothes to get to work. When I knew that I was on, um, when I knew that I was <coughs> on final written warning, when I knew that I would possibly have to piss test later that day, at times like that, the only thing I could remember was that there was a time when I first started drinking that every problem I had in the world went away and I felt powerful and defiant and proud. And uh, that was what it was that kept me going for a long time. And, um, you know, the defects of character that kept developing during that time were phenomenal. You know, um, the easiest way to tell if an alcoholic is lying is if their mouth is moving and sound is coming forward. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was just always constantly lying. And um, and it was so strange, but, you know, someone would ask me if I'd gone to a certain place for breakfast, and I would lie and say yes, because literally even saying no, I did something else, felt like contradicting someone. You see, it's like being raised in the household that I was raised in, one of the characteristics, or some of the characteristics you grow up with is if you've been raised in an abusive household, or rather if you've been raised in an angry household, you always sort of feel guilty on some level. And like, when you're having common discussions with people, there's always this fear that a disagreement or argument could become physical at any time. There's always this fear that if you sit there and disagree with someone, you're going to permanently damage the friendship. There's always a terror about being rejected somehow. And, um, you know, when I found alcohol, it took care of that when I was drinking, but those defects of character, that tendency to come up in self-will and self-seeking, that stuff got worse and worse and worse as time went on. And, um, you know, it was, I'm just going to cut to the chase and say, you know, it, 
almost everyone in here has a better story than I have. I am just a literally just a typical alcoholic. I've mainly just drank straight alcohol. I've, I've had trouble with my allergies my whole life. And yeah, there was a time the doctor gave me some pills. He says, now, remember, Mr. Flynn, you can't drink on these. Oh, yes, you can. Um, but other than that, though, most of the time it was just me drinking. And the, there, I'm not going to tell much of the story. Just know that I do have a criminal record as a result of my drinking. But the only thing you really need to know is that it just never got that good again after I hit that after I hit that plateau. There's no dark outlaw glory to my story at all, nothing like that at all. The only thing you need to know is that the alcohol in the very beginning worked incredibly. It gave me this feeling of peace and ease and comfort. It gave me an ability to survive through life and that it just worked a little bit less every time. And, you know, for all of the problems I had with the law and stuff like that, I can remember that um, there was one point at which I just bought a brand new car. I went out with some friends at happy hour. We were... um, I blacked out on the way home. I smashed into a suburban parked in front of Z Tejas. I drove home in a blackout. I woke up and the roof was crushed up like this. And it was this terrifying moment in which I knew that my drinking was out of my control. But the worst moment for me was not necessarily something big and bad like that. The worst moment for me was about two years before I stopped drinking. When I was sitting with some friends at a little bar, we were doing tequila shots, and for the first time I realized that I was drunk, I was intoxicated, but that fear and that self-doubt and hate had not gone away. Mm-hmm. See, there were times in which the drinking and the alcohol actually made the depression better somehow. It's weird, but when you're going through a certain level of depression, it's like it's almost seductive to feel that you know something that the world doesn't know and that you're this tragic figure of some type. But, um, but, um, but this wasn't like that. This was just plain bottoming out. I was drunk, and yet when I went to the restroom and I looked in the mirror, it was that same motherfucker that I hated so much looking back at me. You know, part of being an alcoholic is that... Um, I'm that guy who finds such a hard time dealing with life and everything that at some point I had to drink in order to preserve my sanity, and now that backfired on me. Um, I'd gone to school in East Texas, and, you know, in East Texas is a hell of a damn place to hit bottom when you're drinking. And, um, you know, you sit there, and it, it's very, very beautiful out there, but if anyone ever been to those cities... Lufkin, Nacogdoches, whatever. When you're sitting there and you look around, it's very beautiful area, but that is obviously a place that people go to to be left alone. And um, it was a place to isolate. It was a place to drink. And, you know, what would happen was that every once in a while, in the middle of hitting bottom, I would still have that one good night out. You know, nothing tasted better than alcohol after a short period of being dry for a while and building some of your tolerance back up. And I can remember one time I was walking along those lonely East Texas roads and there was this wolf started howling in the back. And I can remember like lifting my head up and yelling out, I know how you feel. Because when the alcohol still worked, when it still worked, it was incredible. 
you know, every once in a while I would still get the chemicals right and I would be 10 foot tall and bulletproof as I went out into life. But the thing is, as y'all can see, I'm not a big guy and I don't have a lot of tolerance. And, you know, and I was waking up in the morning and I'd be, God, I just had the worst hangovers. I, my ribs would be sore from vomiting because I've been dry heaving the last couple hours. I'd be rubbing my face into the tile of the restroom trying to get the coolness to give me some level of relief. I'd be looking around on the floor to find some clothes that looked close enough to be clean for me to wear to work that day. And I'd just be thinking, God, I hope I don't have to piss in the cup today. God, I hope they don't come out. Because by this time, you know, I'd been out driving and Williamson County had already called me up to make my amends spontaneously at one point. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, at moments like that, I would yell out the alcoholic national anthem. I'm never going to do it again. And if you tested me at that time, if you took me and you fucking hooked me up to a lie detector, if you put sodium pentothal in my veins, I would have passed any test you had in the world. At that moment, I honestly never wanted to do it again. When they sit there and the wreckage that is your fucking life, right there, no one would ever want to go through that. <clears throat> I had some hangover mornings I would honestly not wish on my worst enemy. There were some days in which it was a combination of physical agony, humiliation, and self-hate that I can't begin to describe to someone who's not an alcoholic. And, um, you know, just cutting to the chase, I, uh, I went out and... Let's see, don't want to go too far over. If I end up going over, everyone just stand up and start walking out. That's what I do to my sponsor. And um, it's, it's just a subtle cue of we're done. That always works. And, uh, you know, I can remember that eventually things got real. And a lot of you all know my Uncle Bob, this extremely easygoing, um, passive person. If anyone here has trouble with alcohol and drugs, by all means, ask him to be your sponsor. Um, that's a fucking joke. Um, you know, I went out to see Uncle Bob, and Bob has been sober since 1978. And uh, we're out in Sacramento, California, and I went with him to a few AA meetings just because, you know, he's, he's an old fart, and that's just what he does. AA is his life. That's where he knows all his people from. And so I went with him to a few meetings, and... Um, I guess it was because I wasn't being dragged to meetings because Bob and my dad both claim to this day they did not know how bad my drinking was. I, I don't, I mean, I, they've said that they don't really have motive to lie, so I assume that that's the truth. But anyway, I went with Bob to a few AA meetings, and since my guard was down, because like I said, I was really just going there to be with my uncle, um, because he... He got out of the service, and he was uh, immediately moved to San Francisco. So I had not known him most of my life, and so I was getting to know him. And we would, we would go to these AA meetings, and I would, like, find myself identifying with what people were saying. You know, I went with him, and he was at the Alcathon, the 24-hour speaker event. He was the 8 o'clock speaker on Christmas Eve. And um, I went, and I listened to him, and... The way they do it in California was he spoke for 45 minutes. They took their little smoke break, and then they came back for 45 minutes and opened up for sharing. And um, I, uh, 
I listened to them, and I identified with every person I heard that I listened to. You know, there was there was this one lady who was uh, from Oakland, California, and she would talk about how it was that she would walk through a not nice neighborhood to the bar because if she took a taxi to the bar. That was one drink she was costing herself on the way there, and that was one drink she was costing herself on the way back. And, you know, before I heard someone share like that, I honestly didn't know that other people counted their alcohol like that. You know, but that's exactly how it was. I knew exactly how many six-pack a gallon of gas was going to buy me. I mean, my mind was always obsessed with that. And um, I... uh, I came back because at that time I was working as a school teacher. I remember thinking to myself as I came back, I was looking at these guys, and I was thinking to myself, you know, um, this is where I'll come in case one day it gets bad, and <laughs> which ended up being two weeks later. <laughs> um, you know, I got myself a job as a uh, – I've been working as a substitute and a teacher's aide at a little school here in West Austin, a middle school, and um, – you know, the thing about about my alcoholism is that that supercharged emotional state, that wasn't always a bad thing. Um, a lot of my creativity came from that. And also, and like, I'm incredibly oversensitive and touchy, but to be honest, a lot of times that was even a useful empathy. And anyway, my first day at one of these jobs, I was sent into the special ed classroom. And so I walked in there and... Um, we had a pretty good morning. I came back the afternoon, and the uh, teacher was like amazed. She was like, wow, a lot of people who take this job, they don't come back after lunch. And um, it, was, it was involving care for children who are medically fragile, and it, it was a very <coughs> strenuous environment. But, man, I just loved those kids. You know, I'd always felt like I was on the outside looking in, and this was a place to really put that empathy. This was a, these were kids who needed someone to love them. And, um, you know, I was sitting there working, I, I got a promotion up and, you know, I'm walking in and the chairman of the special ed department is sitting there and she looks at me and she goes, and she like looks at me and she says, look, I know from what all the other teachers and administrators tell me that you're great with our kids, but I've seen you coming in in the mornings. You're not going to fucking walk into this job and need a few minutes to get it together you're not going to be allowed to have a bad time when one of our kids is having a seizure or anything like that. This is a real job, and you're going to be full battle rattle from the first moment you step on this campus because that's what our kids need. That's what our kids deserve. And uh, I, I looked at that, and I wanted to be a good person. That's something that, um, that's something that I really need you to know. I honestly wanted to be a good person. You know, even to this day, there is this inability to let go of certain things. And, um, you know, a major problem throughout my life was that I'm living this life, but I want to be living my highlight reel, you know? I mean, there are moments at my job in which I've managed to be capable and competent. I've known what I was doing. I want you all to know that, like, there are times in my life in which I've managed to be there for someone and really be helpful. I want you to know that there have been times as a sponsor that I've managed to be honest and kind at the exact same moment. And that's the highlight reel, and that's what it is that I want to live. 
and this job was going to really challenge me and it was going to mainly confront me with my ability to be honest with myself but you know i had like i said it was only two weeks after that though that my drinking finally just i you know i i'd managed to have a few times with some white knuckle sobriety and i managed to uh go without for a while and you know one night um we went out and there was this Puerto Rican guy who was one of the janitors there, and he was leaving us to go up and be with his family in New York. Really nice guy, just a really nice guy. And uh, we all went over to the tavern just a few blocks up the street. And we were sitting there, and I was doing what I did a lot of times at that time. I was just drinking Diet Coke, and I was fucking breaking my arm, patting myself on the back for the fact that I was not drinking. And uh, then this student teacher and his girlfriend ordered two Corona with lime, pay for them, and then just walk off. And, like, I've been sitting there for hours. I mean, literally, you know, middle school gets out at 4.30. This was, like, 9, 10 o'clock at night. And the waitress just looks at me and says, well, these are already paid for. Do you want them? And without a second thought, I just reached over and took both of them down. And it's like, all that fucking time. (laughs) I really meant that I didn't want to fucking drink. I had listened to some people in the meetings and I'd come back, I got myself the square job and I really focused on it, a job that would take advantage of how much I loved kids and could be helpful there. And it was just gone like that. I can remember sitting in the uh, in the parking lot and there was this this feeling of doom coming over me and it was this and it was this voice and I can hear it just as clear as you can hear my voice right now. It said, Your life is about to get much worse. <laughs> You know, and I wasn't exactly winning a gold medal at that time, so that was pretty scary. And uh, I've been doing my uh, community service at the Williamson County Adult Literacy Center. And uh, that was located at that time exactly two blocks away from Hope Group in Cedar Park. And so the next time that I was doing my community service, the uh, people went down there at 8 o'clock to get their cards signed, and I went ahead and I followed after them. And I walked in, and I looked up at... um. There was this little old man sitting in the half measures room, and uh, he said, and I walked in late, and so he looks at me and he says, you know, well, you know, um, are you looking for someone? I said, well, I, I think I'm here for an AA meeting, and he just looked at me and said, welcome. And I walked into that room, and, you know, I was not one of the guys that was happy to be an Alcoholics Anonymous, not at all. I mean, I walked in there still feeling so stung and humiliated, I sat there, and I was judging everybody as I walked in. I'm looking at them like, you know, these are people that worked with their hands. The guy who was sitting right next to me was of a sexual orientation I did not approve of. I just fucking, part of me was infuriated to even be there. It's just like, God, you know, all I wanted was the world to leave me the hell alone. And here I am. And, um, what happened was that I did the most dangerous thing an alcoholic can do. I actually sat down and I listened to what people said. And, you know, the people there were just so honest and so brave and so vulnerable. And I was the guy who always had to look good in front of other people. That's where every defective character that I have 
comes from, that desire to look in front of other people. And these people were just acknowledging how defeated and torn up they were. And they, you know, the subject of the meeting was terminal uniqueness. And they were just describing the fact that, you know, sometimes to an alcoholic, pity feels like love. And, you know, sometimes you just feel that life itself is turned on you. And I listened to them and... Um, <coughs> At the end of the meeting, and the guy that gave my chip claims he didn't say this, but I know what I heard. He um, sits there and he said, and he holds up the desire chip and he says, "This is for anyone who wants to stop drinking and drugging today." And I swear, he said after this, "And if you're not sure if you want to stop drinking or drugging, but you want the pain to stop, this chip might work for you also." And I stood up and I got the, uh, I got the chip, and he hugged me and. Um, as I was sitting down, there was this little old Mexican lady sitting behind me, and she leaned forward and she said, I hope you know that everybody in this room is secretly rooting for you to make it. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that was January 10th of 1999, and I've not had a drink or a drug since that day. And everything has been fine. <laughs> no, it's... Uh, it, uh, I um I uh, every uh, like my s- third week the meeting was on the fourth step I walked in I sat down I talked for 20 fucking minutes I had no idea what I was saying um, <laughs> I was the guy who had to share at every meeting I mean it was pretty insufferable for a while but you know I can remember sitting there and I look around at the guys and I looked around at the people that I got sober with my litter mates that came in at the same time and I sat there and I looked at them and I was like man this is awesome we're all going to stay we're going to support each other we're going to stay together this is the family and the connectedness I've been looking for and um I was about nine months sober. I looked around the rooms, and there was only one of those guys still left. And um, at the time, I was going through this thing in which if you said something that sounded really hip-slick and cool in the meeting, I'd walk up to you, and I'd get your number in front of everyone and ask you to be my sponsor, and then I'd never call you again. Mm-hmm. And um, I had... Uh, what happened with me was that, as I said, there was abuse in my family, and it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't evil, because I've grown to understand that that's a seldom occurrence in this world. But there was a lot of sexual abuse, and when I was several months sober, I got a list into how bad it actually gotten, and I reached in my pocket, and I happened to have one of those numbers, and I called him up. His name was Gary, and I told him about what had happened and what I just found out. And about how it is that my mind was screaming. Because as an alcoholic, my experience has been that we drink two times. We drink when it might be good again, when it might be like the first time. And we drink when I don't give a fuck. And at that moment, you know, I wanted the entire world to just stop and let me off. And instead, I picked it up and I called it and Gary told me, you know, I want you to go buy a big Chief Indian tablet. I want you to write down two lists of names. I want you to write down anyone that you've ever been pissed off at and anyone that you would not want to see if you were walking down the street today. I didn't know this. He had just started me on my fourth and fifth step. And um, it, I spent a lot of time working on that fourth and fifth step. When he gave me my year chip, Gary told the room that I worked the 12 steps like a turtle galloping through oatmeal. <laughs> I did, but I did finally get it done. And, um, and it, was, it was very comprehensive. I mean... 
if in 10th grade we were walking down the hallway and I said hello to you and you didn't fucking say hi back, your name was on there. You know, I mean, it was that type of thing. It was, uh, you know, my first, like I said, I was not the prettiest person coming into this room. My, uh, <laughs> my first year inside this program was sort of proof that half measures can avail you something. You know, I, I, went, to, I went to meetings and I did a really strong and honest fourth and fifth step, you know, and I sat down with Gary and um, the strongest spiritual experience I've ever had in my life was that very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, that realization that I was not the only person that felt that way. But damn, that fifth step was a close second also. I was sitting there and my experience was as I was going down this list of names, I actually felt something lifting off of me as I was talking about this stuff. It was um, it was almost as powerful a feeling as that first time I got drank and the fear went, went away. And, you know, at the end of it, you know, Gary goes out and he takes his final smoke break, his cool filter kings, and then he comes back in, he looks at me and says, well, is there anything else? And, you know, I think that we all, um, I think that we all, it's very natural to have something that we don't put on the fifth step, that we don't put on the fourth step. And I've obviously, I sponsor obviously guys. And when I was sitting there um, it, now, 20 years later, it's laughable. It's always something off of the sex inventory has been my experience. And I went ahead and I told him the three things that I had not put down, three things I was going to take with me to the grave. No one else needed to know about them. And uh, we went down on our knees and we did the seven-step prayer. And the first line of the seven-step prayer is, My Creator, I'm willing that you should have all of me, the good and the bad. And uh, when I stood up, Gary looked at me in the eyes and Gary said, You know, Barry, I want you to know that I love you because for the first time I feel that I really know you. And to this day, I try and remember to say that to someone after I listen to their fifth step. Because that was the first time anyone had told me that they loved me with any sort of feeling in a long time. And, you know, and as I go into this program, as I go into these steps, one of the quotes has really meant a lot to me over the years has been page 124 in the family afterward. It says that we have to understand that in God's hands, a dark past is our greatest possession. With it, we'll hold the key to alleviating the misery and the suffering of others. You know, what I found is that if I sit there and I remind myself, if I go to newcomer meetings, I remind myself how small and how defeated and how dismissed and how afraid I was. That is the thing that I actually need to have. What I need to have is the ability to sit there listen to a newcomer talk, and know all of the fear that they're going through. This program works most powerfully when I'm sitting across from someone that I have nothing in common with, and I think in my mind that everything that they're going through is just as painful and terrifying as anything that I've been through. When I sit there and I look at them, and I completely validate what it is that they're saying. When I sit there and I acknowledge them, and I know that their pain is real, and for just a second I stop thinking about myself. You know, if you go to a lot of newcomer meetings, you probably are going to listen to a lot of drunk logs. You're going to hear a lot of war stories. But something else that's going to happen is you're going to be able to remind yourself about how bad the pain was, and you're going to know exactly what it is that the person needs to be told. The newcomer... 
if they want to, should be told about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and about the 12 steps and the 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. Those are both great books. But when they sit there and we sit there and we own our pain, we look at them and we know what it is that they really need to hear. What they really need to hear is keep coming back. What they really need to hear is, I'm so glad you're here. What they need to hear is, I am so glad that you're here, and you have made my life better by coming in and being part of this fellowship. If you're waiting for someone to tell you not to drink today, I'm asking you not to drink today. If you're waiting for someone to tell you not to cut yourself today, I'm asking you not to cut yourself today. If you're waiting for someone to tell you not to binge and purge today, I'm asking you not to binge and purge today. If you sit there and you own what it is that the person across the table from you is going through, you're always going to know what it is that this fellowship means. I absolutely support traditions meetings. When I was a chairman of the group conscious, I helped start a traditions meeting at this group at one point. But if you sit there and you look at the traditions, the main thing you need to know is this. We are stronger together. That's what it is that you need to know. Every tradition up there is meant just as a guidepost for how you do 12-step work. That's what it's meant to do. And, you know, and I'm going to tell you right now that when I sit there and I do that, when I look at my dark past, man, if, if the only thing you do is get sober and stay inside the rooms, you're fucking cheating yourself. You know, I, I, I came in there and I acknowledge that a lot of us have bad stories. You know, my... Uh, you know, one of the things I had to understand about my dad was I had to understand about how bad his childhood really was. You know, his mother was a terror. She was often locked up in the Austin State Hospital. And she wasn't just there because back in the 50s, that was the only drug and detox area in town. She was there because she was today what we would refer to as borderline personality disorder and a psychopath. I was many years sober, and I found out that when my grandmother had taken her own life, that my dad had been the one that found the body. You know, that was something that he had never been able to leash. And for years, I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to stay here, I'm going to stay sober, and one day my dad's going to open up to me, and we're going to have this great conversation. And what I found instead is that a lot of times, man, the greatest griefs are silent. <clears throat> You sit there and you sit next to someone who's in pain, and sometimes the only thing you can do is offer to be there to listen if the time comes. And um, that's exactly how it is that you do the fist up. You don't beat anything out of someone. If they feel comfortable enough to tell you about the thing, that's great. And when they tell you about the thing, you don't fucking judge it. That's the simple fact. And... Um, you know, what uh, What happened with me for years was that I, I came into these rooms and I just thought I had to stay sober. And when it was when I took this recovery outside of these rooms that my life started to get better. I was, um, I was a, you know, I was about six years sober. My older sister, who is just this incredible person, just a person who was always a source of unconditional love in my life, she died from cancer. And cancer is just a bad fucking way to go. They told us she had six months. Six weeks later, she was gone. And, um, you know, I sat there, and at the time, my life just absolutely went to shit. I lost a job I'd had for six years, my entire sobriety at that time. I was facing a lot of things. And um, 
I went up to this guy and I asked him to sponsor me because I needed to go through the 12 steps again. And I thought that, okay, this guy, he's been sober 30-something years. We're going to, like, do some guru shit. We're going to levitate our asses out of here. And that was not what happened. Um, he sat me down, and we opened up to page 62 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we're sitting there looking at it, and then page 62 it says, Resentment is the number one offender. It kills more alcoholics than anything else. From its stem, all forms of spiritual illness. And I sat there and he looked at me and he says, you know, you need to start doing inventory. You need to get a hold of this. You know, as an alcoholic, like I said, my, I don't want to be present. I want to live that highlight reel. My brain mistakes the adrenaline for joy. You know, one of the problems I've had with anger my entire life is that to me, anger feels like strength and power. It is the absolute antidote to a weakness. And, you know, when I was sitting there looking at him, I was so resentful at life. And he, um, he forced me in. This is, this is something I feel is significant. I've had a lot of sponsors in this program. The two sponsors that were really worth a damn. The very first thing they did when we sat down was turn to page 67 and show me the sick man's prayer. Perhaps this is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God save me from being angry. Thy will not mine be done. And, you know, when I was sitting there and I was going through the sick man's prayer and I'm looking at all these people, I had to see their side of the story. My mom wasn't a cruel person. She was a very strong person. She went back to college in her 40s, but she was terrified of things because she had grown up shit poor, and she's scared that that was going to happen to her kids. So, yeah, there were some times in which she could come and be gone. My dad was just overwhelmed. There was nothing in his childhood that taught him how to deal with emotions. He was fucking finding his way every step of the moment. He probably still needed to have a parent at the time that he was raising us. And, you know, when I was sitting there looking at my life, I started looking out at the kids, and I realized, you know what, I can do one of two things. So I've got this over-emotional center to me. I'm the guy who I'm driving down the street. I see the homeless person sitting on the side of the road, and I feel guilty that I'm in my car. You know, that's how it is in my brain stem works. And, you know, when I'm sitting there and I walk into my classroom, I look at my students, that's a group of kids that need me, and that's some people I can be there for. When I was, uh, when I was going through all of this, it was just very shortly after, there was a student in my classroom who was having a lot of seizures. By a lot of seizures, I mean like 30 a day. And so they had to put a VNS inside of her, which was an implant that helps go ahead and control the nervous system, helps regulate some of the flow. And she uh, came in, and there was one problem. They had done this to a little girl out in Oregon, and this person, once they had it put in them, had shown signs of psychosis afterwards. But, you know, the mom and the dad are looking at this, and this is their little girl, and they've got to make the decision. And I don't blame them. I've made the same fucking decisions. And they went in. She had it put in, and it did control a lot of the seizures. The seizure activity did really die down quite a bit. But, like, two weeks after she has it put down, we're walking down the hallway, and she just suddenly reaches out and rakes her fingers across the face of the assistant principal. And then, you know, one day we're in the kitchen area of the classroom, she just starts throwing plates and stuff. And it was, 
she had this blood curdling scream because she was having these really powerful hallucinations. And there was one day that was just a bad day. And it actually wasn't just her. I mean, it was a most of my work has been done with students who are on the autism spectrum. And so when, when an emotion enters the classroom like that, it often bounces around and gains power. And so there was one day that the entire class was just having a rough day. And this little lady took this girl in, Michelle, not her real name. And she sits Michelle down to go to the restroom, and she looks at her and says, you know, Michelle, I want you to know something. I want you to know that we love you. And this little girl started crying. And when she started crying, and when the lady came out and told me the story, I learned a lesson that is possibly the most powerful lesson I know in all of Alcoholics Anonymous, a lesson that stayed with me even longer than don't drink one day at a time. And that lesson is this. It's not about me. Everyone out there that I've never met who's a stranger who I have nothing in common with, everything that they're going through life is just as real as anything happening to me. They, if I start wishing for people to get justice, I better fucking give myself justice first. I better not think about justice. I better wish for God's mercy instead. I've got to wish for that mercy to go to everyone else. And um, very quickly, what's up, Chris? <laughs> this is from page 276 out of the big book. If you have a third edition like me, it's on page 312. The last 15 years of my life have been rich and meaningful. I have had my share of problems, heartaches, and disappointments because that is life. But also I have known a great deal of joy and a peace that is the handmaiden of an inner freedom. I have a wealth of friends and with my AA friends an unusual quality of fellowship. For to these people I am truly related. First through mutual pain and despair and later through mutual objectives and newfound faith and hope. And as the years go by working together, sharing our experiences with one another, and also sharing a mutual trust, understanding, and love, without strings, without obligation, we acquire relationships that are unique and priceless. There is no more aloneness without awful ache, so deep in the heart of every alcoholic that nothing before could ever reach it. That ache is gone and never need return again. Now there is a sense of belonging of being wanted and needed and loved. In return for a bottle and a hangover, we have been given the keys of the kingdom. And the last thing I want to say tonight is, I don't care who you are and I don't care what it is you're going through right now, I hope you know that everybody in this room is secretly rooting for you to make it. And I want to thank you all for letting me share my story.